today's episode. And as I said, criticism shuts down your creativity, not just your willingness to share it, but your ability to even tap it. So let's talk about that critic for a second. People say, what is it? Is it, I'm so hard on myself. The critic is an internalized voice that we get from outside, from our parents, from other people who were critical of us, teachers, the voice of authority. But also the critic is a big dummy that has been installed at the gate to protect you because somewhere in your past, you were vulnerable in some way and you got hurt. And so the powers that be in your brain put a big dumb critic at the door and said, you're not allowed to, you can't go out, you'll get hurt, can't do this, you'll get hurt. And so we'll bark you back into a corner so that you don't do things that make you vulnerable. Welcome to the Modern Author Podcast. Your host, Eric Custer. Eric Custer. Stop searching for your passion. <laughs> it's, it's one of those phrases that we hear all the time, like every graduation speaker, we see it on Instagram, find your passion, you'll never work a day in your life. And yet Terry Trespicio tells us that stop working, look, searching for your passion, uh, that fate and passion are things that hold us back. And she should know, her TED talk uh, from TEDxKC went viral with more than 7 million people viewing it with the simple title of Stop Searching for Your Passion. And on this talk, uh, she shares with us a little bit of what she learned along the way. And, and she found herself wrestling with this idea of what is my passion? What is meaning? What is my purpose? Instead, she's like, I, I just sort of figured out what I like doing and kept doing more of it. And that idea of not hunting for this thing that we can call our passion and instead, like, you know, find our action really does go a long way. There really is no one way to get there, but you just have to try to get there, I think was the powerful thing. And on this exercise that she led us through, she talked a lot about how to get yourself going, how to find prompts, how to get words on the page, whatever it is you're creating really is the most important thing. And especially recognizing that so much of what stops us from creating and putting out there really is criticism. And looking at any piece of criticism that we get and understanding, is it good criticism or is it really something we should just ignore? And I think for me, that's something that I've thought a lot about. How is it that criticism or the theory of potential criticism holds us back so much? Uh, she gave me one of my favorite quotes as well, listening at the interview. She said, writing a book is like swimming in the dark. And we got her at the exact perfect time. She was just about a couple weeks away from, sub from submitting her manuscript for her first book. They'll be coming out sometime uh, in 2022. And, and I think hearing someone who's in the throes of it, in the process, has been writing, been creating for a long time, and now going through this process of creating a book really went a long way. So you're gonna hear a lot about her insights, about how she keeps herself on track, how she listens to feedback, and how she rem remembers to listen to herself of what she's enjoying. And if she keeps doing those things she likes doing, she gets better at them, and ultimately that will become something that you can do more of. Terry Trespicio, an incredible conversation, and you'll get some real insights on how you as a writer, as a creator, can really get some words down. Um, she graced us with a longer workshop time today to talk through how any of us can learn a little bit about how to unlock our inner writer and our inner creator and put more good in the world. So stop searching for your passion. Figure out what you like doing, keep doing more of it, and you'll get better at it. Enjoy this conversation today. I certainly did. Terry, thank you so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. Did I jump out of the curtain too quickly? I'm sorry. Perfect. 
I mean, I was like, like, hello. <laughs> we're, in, we're in Zoom world. Everything like, you know, the fact any weird yeah, thing can happen right. now. So you jumped out perfectly. Like there's a birthday cake and everything. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I am thrilled. I'm really excited. You've got quite a group here. Yes. Really? Yes. I mean, I love all these topics. Well, I want to maybe sort of start with a little bit of your journey because I did share your TED talk and some stuff about you, but I, maybe I'd love to give you a chance to sort of tell your story. And I, I was doing my research, MFA in poetry. This is the start yes. uh, starting yes. point for you in this journey. And yet you make this transition into uh, a very interesting sort of merging digital economy. Tell us about the journey from oh. MFA in poetry into uh, oh Martha God. Stewart land and how, how that'll happen. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, just so you know, no one knows what's going to happen. <laughs> None of this was planned. I mean, I was like, I looked at programs and I thought, oh, I like this Emerson. I was living in Boston and I was like, I want to stay here. There's so many great schools. I want to do what speaks to me. And I really wanted to do the MFA program. There is no promise of a job really with, really with any education, but right. I knew I wanted to do it. And so what do you do when you graduate with an MFA? <laughs> I interned at a magazine. I, you know, like who who knows? But what I ended up doing was getting a job as a copywriter. It was the very early days of the internet where you could mm -hmm. look for jobs online, but I still had to go down to like FedEx or something. It wasn't even FedEx. It was Kinko's, right? And fax your stuff over. Like it was, <laughs> it's a very weird intermediary world, but I got a job as a copywriter at a catalog company. And so that was my first creative job. And that was the first time I realized, and I didn't articulate it this way, but it didn't matter if they sold wigs or sticky notes or plants. It was just like, wow, I'm getting paid to write. And yeah. that was really exciting. And yet after a year and a half, almost two years of writing about wigs and hair pieces, which is what the subject matter was, I started to get, I would start taking naps at my desk. I was like, it's time for something new, I think. And so I started, you know, like looking around. I didn't know. I never knew. And we didn't have nearly the tools that we have today to look mm -hmm. for jobs. But someone from grad school, which is why I think your contacts in school, we love our teachers, we love our professors, but your fellow students are the ones who yeah. are worth staying in touch with. And one of them said, hey, we have an opening for an associate editor. Do you want to apply for it? And I was like, okay, I'm totally not qualified. That's cool. And I went and I, I applied for it and I kept getting invited back and for interviews. And I knew there were people who had more qualifications. I mean, I was, by the way, I was 30 applying for an associate editor job. I was not, a, I was not 21. Right. And there were kids who had studied right out of school, working in magazines who wanted that job. And I said to them, look, elephant in the room is that I don't have the publishing experience. Right. But I'll tell you what I do have. And this is the magic of transitioning any work experience into other work experience. I said, but I've been working for a few years at a company that is targeting women, wanting to speak to and sell to women. Mm -hmm. And we are selling a product. And that means making them come back to that print catalog again and again. And what's different between that and a magazine? you're still trying to talk to women and make them come back again and again. So of course there were other reasons, but when I said that I was trying to make it make sense why you would hire someone who didn't have, you know, quite the experience. I got the job. I felt totally insecure and like an imposter from the day first day, but yeah, I started working and doing that. And then I, it was not a Martha Stewart publication. It was this magazine that it was a hippie dippy magazine that didn't have any money. It couldn't pay its writers. It was in fall on hard times. Mm -hmm. And our publisher, deal of the century, sold it to Martha Stewart. Hmm. And so, you know, they, she got it a few years later. I worked there for years. And finally, they moved the magazine to New York. They said, we're moving into New York. And I said, can I come? And they were like, everyone's allowed to uh, interview for their jobs. 
Hmm. So basically it was like, no one has their job, but you can all try for your job again. And I tried and they took me and I was the only employee that moved. They laid everyone else off. And I don't, that is not because I'm the smartest. I'm the best editor. It's because I had my hand in so many things. Hmm. It was cheaper to have me go. (laughs) <laughs> and so, because I did the, I did a daily radio show for the Martha Stewart show, having yep. had no experience doing radio, I just kept raising my hand. I'll do that. I'll do that. And then I had been doing so many things. They're like, okay, fine. You're the time capsule. You'll mm-hmm. come to New York with all fancy New York editors and you, and you'll let us know, you know, how to keep the soul of the magazine. Whatever. Right. Right. And that was it. And then I got laid off two years later <laughs> as these things go. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm laid off. Like I came to New York, my whole life changed. Yep. I mean, I'm still in New York. I wanted to stay. And then what? Then you get laid off and they're like, thanks so much. Bye. Which yeah. happens with any job yep. can happen to anyone. And I was like thinking about moving on anyway, but I didn't know how, it was kind of like, I didn't know how to break up. And then he dumped me. Like that's what happened. <laughs> Martha dumped me and it was totally fine. They were wonderful. They did what made sense. I did not take it personally. And I was like, this is fine. What's next? Yep. And I made it up. I said, I don't, I looked at jobs online now that the internet was fully functional. And I said, I don't want any of these jobs. Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't want, Mm -hmm. do I have to do it? No. Can I stay home? I was living the lockdown life like eight years before Mm -hmm. anyone else. I was like, I'm just going to stay here and I'm going to see if I can get people to send me checks home. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do it. Mm -hmm. But that's eight years of making up as I go and figuring out not what I was most passionate about because you could be passionate about a lot of things, yep. but I did want to figure out what do I like doing and who can I stand yep. because, you know, people get on your nerves yep. and I'm yep. pretty much introvert. So I like a lot of my alone time and I do not suffer fools. So I was sort of like, how do I make this work that I get paid and only work with who I want to work with? That was the goal. That yeah. was the whole goal. Stay in New York. And, and so, you know, your, your TED Talk comes out here, and that was sort of the first way I was introduced to you. And this thing kind of blew up. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure when, you know, when you give a TED Talk, you're like excited about it. But did you have any ideas? There's a lot you, of, no, there's a ton of TEDx now? talks. There's yeah. 200,000, I don't even know how many at this point. Mm-hmm. But years ago, it was, I was in the top 10. No, no, not top 10. Maybe top I don't know. Who cares? Yeah. My point is, it's New York, so we have sirens all the time. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so here's what happened. I did the talk, and I hoped someone saw it. Yeah. And this is not a viral talk. Right. It grew, I say, it was less like a virus and more like a chronic disease for our mm. friends who are writing books on chronic disease because it just mm-hmm. kind of grew year over year. Yep. But within, it got featured on the front page of something. It just got attention. It, it kept going. Mm-hmm. And so it's been five years. Hmm. And the reason I got that, got that talk was someone dropped out and they really? were looking for, yeah, I didn't know them. That's amazing. Someone, a New York Times journalist, someone was supposed to give a TED talk and then they got pulled out on assignment. And wow. then someone I don't know who followed me on social media, people think that things can't come out of social media. Some guy who had followed me and said, hey, you know, our company sponsors this event. Hmm. They're looking for someone. They're obviously looking at lots of different speakers. Do you want to throw your hat in the ring? And I said, yeah. And I got on there and it, the guy was, the organizer was like, so do you have a TED talk in you? And I said, I, I think so. Cause I had toyed with some ideas. I had mm-hmm. fantasies, but I didn't think I was important enough to give one. Hmm. Um, it turns out that doesn't, actually doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. And I said, I really can't stand the idea of passion and the idea of fate. I think it's hmm. like, oh, all these things that hold us back. And I, yep. cause I, I want to say with the passion thing. Yeah. And so the reason I say this now is because what we're about to do in a few minutes is actually do 
writing on our own, but feedback in a way that actually moves something forward. Mm -hmm. And what this man did with me, he's the best, the best organizer I've ever worked with. Mm -hmm. And he got on a call with me every day and said, well, what do you think about this? Can you write that up and see where you get with it? I started just writing the talk. He didn't even say I had the talk. He said, write it, write it. So every night I wrote and I said, okay, is this the thing? Is this my argument? I figured it out by writing about it. And then I'd come back to him. And he said, what do you, do we think of it? He goes, well, is it this or is it this? We had like this wonderful conversation for five days. I said, Mike, do I need to buy a plane ticket? Because <laughs> this event was less than two months away. It was like maybe a month. Really? This wasn't like, hey, six months from now. They had to fill this quickly. Yeah. And I would have to have a talk up and running very quickly. Uh, yeah, you got it. I was like, I do? Like, I, couldn't, I was like, oh my God. He's like, I just want to make sure. Like, he really put me through the paces. Yeah. And the yeah. writing got me there. Yeah. Because I was willing to explore it and take feedback from him and really, and that's how I got it. And the reason that talk has done so well is not because I'm smarter, better, fancier, or famous because no one was looking for me. Mm -hmm. No one. Mm -hmm. I got it there because the idea stuck and then people liked it and related to it. It spoke to them. Yep. It has nothing yep. to do with me. Yep. And that's why I say to everyone out here is doing doing talks or, or sorry, writing books. You can do talks and you should because yep. people consume stuff in very short bites. And that right. talk was only 10 minutes about. And that matters too. 25 minute talk or 20 minute talk. No one's watching those anymore. <laughs> I love that though. We figured it out by writing about it. that is uh, for anyone at this point. We, we talk about like topics evolve and you learn by writing. You don't learn by sort of having the table of contents at the beginning. You oh my God. No, nope. I hate that. I tried that myself just, <laughs> just the past uh, few months when I am like you guys, I'm working on my first book. It's yep. been a long time coming. I didn't know what it was. I've been writing it for years, not sure where it was, what it was going to be. And then, you know, I worked with a developmental editor who I trust a lot who you'll hear about and she helped me shape it. And then what happened? We pitched some agents, got an agent, pitched them. I wanted to do the traditional. It is mm -hmm. certainly not the most popular. Mm -hmm. Most people publish their own. There is Nothing wrong with it. In fact, when you publish your own, a publisher will look for what does well and will pick it up. And as you guys know, we'll republish if they like it. I had a friend that happened to. It was, she was thrilled. But I just was like, man, I just want to try it this way. Mm -hmm. So I did. And here's my point. I got an interest from Simon & Schuster. I met with the editor. I talked to her. I got a deal. I mean, this blew my mind because it was during the pandemic. Who knew? I mean, this is how you, you never know. Yeah. I tell you, I wrote. I'm a strong writer. I've written my whole life. I know that the reason I got the deal I got was because of my husband, Ted, TEDx, because that, <laughs> I am married to Ted forever because they looked at that and they said, yeah, 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 you're a good writer, but that is the thing people have listened yeah. to. So I took my material that I've been writing and I'm kind of reshaping it to fit what they want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just a side note for people who want, you want to publish it your way, you publish it your way. You want a publisher to publish it, you do what they want. Mm -hmm. And so that's a challenge, but my point is, the editor and I, she said, make up a TOC, like a table of contents and start working on that. And I worked on it. I was like, this is not how I like to work. And I showed it to her and she was like, this one, I don't know about this. And I was like, Aww. and I said, can I just write, like, can I not, this, this math problem at the start of the book yep. doesn't work for me. Yeah. And so I never looked at it again. And I've yeah. been writing for a few months now and it's not done yet. Mm -hmm. I'm flailing through. I said, it's writing a book is like swimming in the dark. You're mm -hmm. in a pool, you know you're not going to die, yeah. but you're swimming in the dark and you may yeah. hit a wall and you don't know. Yeah. I feel, <laughs> I say this because I feel the same way you guys do. Yep. Yep. Well, so one last thing. So I want to ask one last question. I'm going to hand the reins to you here really quickly. So 
you are this big advocate of sort of this discovery, kind of like giving yourself permission to yes. discover. You talk about it. Lauren asked a little bit question about like, what do you advise to people when they are in that discovering, figuring, they're swimming in the dark phase? Like, what are things that you encourage people to do to help make that swimming in the dark not feel so scary or lonely or whatever it might be? Well, if lonely is the problem. If lonely is the problem, I don't know if writing is the solution. Hmm. You know, like you have to figure out what problem you're trying to solve. If mm -hmm. you feel lonely, loneliness is a problem that must be solved the way it must be solved. If you feel lonely in the work, seek camaraderie, write with other people. But the thing about discovery is I don't show my work to people I don't care to hear from. Hmm. I don't look for everyone to agree on what my work should be. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to please everyone and I'll never try to please everyone because you can't please everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I have no interest in that. Like someone said to me, oh, I'd love to be a reader. And I was like, I don't really want to hear what you think. Like, <laughs> I, just, I think you have to be really careful about that. I don't think that you need, there's a sense of, oh, let me, well, she thinks this and he, what are you, a word waitress? Like I am not a word waitress. Yeah. I write what I think is going to work. I seek counsel from people I trust. I do not ask everyone. I do not read it. I might read it to my mom. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I'm going to teach you a way to, to give each other feedback. This is a tool for you guys to use. My mother doesn't know this tool. She's mm -hmm. aware of it because I talk about it. But when I read it to her, she did something you shouldn't do, which is she went off the page and she started talking about something else. And I was like, mm -hmm. mom. And I said, do you understand why I wrote it this way? Do you get it? <laughs> oh, yes. Wonderful. But she didn't know how to give the feedback. So right. I train and go with people who are trained in the method I'm going to teach you today. Yep. And I don't want to hear from anyone else. So be very careful about who you ask. And with that, I think the floor should be yours. You teed it up perfectly because I think to your point, Terry is right. Feedback is one of those things that, you know, I always tell people, the one thing I've learned about being a teacher and a coach over doing this one is that the best teachers actually know how to give you support and also coaching, but not necessarily feedback. And I think that's kind of the thing oh, behind it is like, that's right. Keeps them the tools, give them the sort of support to keep going here. But at the end of the day, this is a journey for for sure. So totally. Uh, and by the way, I am waiting as we speak for the editor that I'm working with to get back to me on her first read of just fifteen thousand words. Yep. And I wrote her a letter and told her, "Here's how I would please ask that you give me feedback. I can't control." her, nor am I right. trying to censor her. But I said, I know that we both want this book done, but if you tell me everything that's not working, it's going to be hard for me to do what we both want me to do. Yep. <laughs> so could yep. you do it this way? So you can <laughs> request it, but yeah. I get nervous about that stuff too. Yep. And so we're going to dive into it. Um, I know I saw some document you guys are sharing with so many great questions about mm -hmm. passion, creativity. So you want to jump in? You're about to do some writing, people. And I know you already have a lot of writing you have to do, want to do, need to do, and you already know what that is. But today, I want to give you just a, a little refreshing kind of effervescent nudge in a way that helps you do what you're already good at. So when someone says, you know, how's the writing going? How is it coming along? What do you feel, right? Yeah, it's coming. It's like you're halfway up the mountain and dragging, you know, a duffel bag behind you. I get it. I get that it's not, doesn't always feel easy. But what if it did? What if the writing of it, you could free yourself up to do? Well, the question is, when's the last time you felt squeezed? And I mean, squeezed like maybe you were squeezed by time. Maybe you were squeezed because someone made a, a, a not very funny remark about something you were working on or, yeah, just something where you, or you read something of someone else's and felt really jealous because it was so good and you felt the squeeze around that. That squeeze is, that's what we call in my world, the critic, like that kind of tightening up. When you feel tightened up around your work, very hard to open up, very hard to get at the part that makes you great. 
We think writing works like this. The muse visits you, whispers in your ear, inspiration flips on, we float on fairy wings to your destination, and end of story. And of course, for some people, it might work that way. I've heard people have that experience, but for most of us, it doesn't always feel that way. Instead, we end up waiting and wondering and doubting, and when is this book going to come take me for a walk because I feel stuck? Now, you know about this talk. You can go watch it. The, the point, and we've already covered that part, the point of that is I always love words. I was always passionate about writing. No question. I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know what that looked like in the 80s, in the 90s. I have no idea what it looked like. And it's changed in the past 10, 15 years. But I was riddled with self-doubt. I really, I mean, my mother bought me a shirt one Christmas and it was like, she bought it at the mall and it had glitter and it said, I'm a writer. And I said, mom, I can't wear this shirt. And she's like, but you never believe you are. And I wanted you to know that you were. And I was like, okay, t-shirt, never wearing this, never wearing this. But anyway, I assumed there was one right way to be a writer or to do anything I wanted to do. And if there's only one right way, well, you figure chances are you'll, go, you'll do it wrong. Now, as you know, I did spend the first part of my career crafting content for media in lots of ways, for my boss, for the magazine I work for, but then I did media for TV and radio. I've done it across platform, and that's what I did for a long time. And as you know, I got laid off and went <laughs> built my own business. And today, the way I talk about this is I change the way people think about to think about, talk about, and communicate what they do. I just kept narrowing over the past few years the window of what I felt like doing. And for someone who writes or someone who runs their own business or even, even inside of jobs that you have, you can still become specialist. You can narrow it if you want. And so I've had the opportunity to do it for lots of different industries. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I happen to do a lot of financial stuff because they just keep calling because I've been in a lot of their events, but I never picked a specialty. I picked something I liked doing and kept doing it and doing it well. Now, when we think about writing though, no matter what, because you guys are writing all kinds of different stuff and have all kinds of different walks of life and career goals and you know things of your own that you want, but you don't need to be inspired to write. And I say this to you to relieve you of that, because if you wait till you're inspired, good luck. You get inspired by doing the work. That is why I love to write, because when I've done a little of it, I feel really good after. Jeff Hayden is one of the most, I guess, the top most popular writer on Inc., I think it is. I was looking around for someone who had written about this topic, and in fact, he wrote about it, the motivation myth. And he says, motivation or inspiration, I think of them as very similar, excuse me, is a result, not a precondition. So you don't have to wait until you have it first. You will have it as a result of doing the work. The key is giving yourself a chance to experience progress. And that's why it's hard to jump in and out of writing your book when you've got 10 minutes. You can't. You need to settle in. My marker is like an hour, hour and a half. After hour and a half, my sharpness wears off and I need to go away and do something else. But you've got to give yourself a chance to experience progress over a couple hours, over a couple days, weeks, months, years. You know what doesn't help? Criticism. Why? Because as I said, it narrows, it squeezes, it tightens the vice so that it's hard to get at the parts of you that want to come out. Couple reasons. One is your brain has a negativity bias, so negative thoughts stick more. Can't get that idea off my head that I suck. Also, you've been taught to believe that criticism is good for you. 
oh, that teacher was so hard on me. It's like this weird Stockholm syndrome or a kind of weird masochistic thing. Like they made me feel terrible. So I learned so much. Yes, you may have learned a lot from people who showed you things that you were doing wrong, but I don't think it was how to be more creative. They probably taught you other things that served you. Your creativity probably blossomed in spite of it. We've also been taught to compete with instead of to cultivate creative work. We think there's only room for one person's book on such and such topic or that person now that everyone loves her, then I can't be someone. This isn't true. And as I said, criticism shuts down your creativity, not just your willingness to share it, but your ability to even tap it. So let's talk about that critic for a second. People say, what is it? Is it, I'm so hard on myself. The critic is an internalized voice that we get from outside, from our parents, from other people who were critical of us, teachers, the voice of authority. But also the critic is a big dummy that has been installed at the gate to protect you because somewhere in your past, you were vulnerable in some way and you got hurt. And so the powers that be in your brain put a big dumb critic at the door and said, you're not allowed to, you can't go out, you'll get hurt, can't do this, you'll get hurt. And so we'll bark you back into a corner so that you don't do things that make you vulnerable. That's a problem. That's a real problem, especially when you want to write. The myth of self-improvement or of improvement in writing, and I get this all the time, I used to think this myself, is that if someone would just tell me what I'm doing wrong, I'll fix it and I'll be amazing. But that is actually not how it works at all. It's not. This story was the cover story of Harvard Business Review just over a year ago, right? Last, well, more than that, a year and a half. The feedback fallacy, Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall can look it up. And they said, people don't need feedback, not traditional feedback. We're talking about traditional feedback. They need attention to what they do best. But what do people do when they give you feedback? They go, yeah, it's a really great effort, but here's where, and they're real specific about how you messed up. Well, this wasn't good. And that was go, okay, well, I guess I'm smarter now that you told me. Actually, these authors say you're not better because of it. Because when someone says, hey, you know, can I give you some feedback? You're like, sure, Bob, I'd love to hear feedback. You know the hairs in the back of your neck stand up. But what if when you got feedback, it felt like this? What if it felt like being stroked? What if you trusted and it felt wonderful to hear? That's not typically how we feel around feedback. Positive attention is blank more powerful than negative attention in creating high performance on a team. How much more powerful do you think? Maybe one, two, five, ten, maybe ten times? No, try 30. 30 times more powerful. I didn't say flattery. I said positive attention is 30 times more powerful, these authors say, than negative attention in creating high performance on a team. If it works for them, don't you think it would work for you? They say excellence is idiosyncratic, which means they said, everyone thinks that's easy to be excellent. Just do that. But then how we're going to get there is going to be hard. They said it's actually the opposite of that. There's no one clear definition of excellence. And it's very easy for you to get there when you lean into what you're great at. That means there is no one straight path to excellence. It's only yours. Now I want to introduce you to this method that I did not create. I it changed my life. It was a, an approach to writing that changed my life. I've used the gateless method in lots of other environments with people who are not writers, but this is very exciting because it was originally developed for writers. The gateless method is a process, okay? It was designed to help writers get past writer 
block to help them open up. They were cramped up. The woman who created it said she realized that writers were locked down by their critic, by their fears, and they couldn't do what she knew they could do. So in the Gayless Method, we focus on where the work has power and energy rather than on what needs fixing. It's based on Suzanne Kingsbury. That's, that's the person who created it. She is also my developmental editor, one of the most sought after in the country. She helps people birth their books, essentially. And it's based on her study of neuroscience, Buddhist meditation, the literary masters. She's done a ton of research. She has done this for years. When I went on a weekend retreat and experienced this, I was like, okay, this is all great and all, but can you just tell me how to make my writing better? I did the same thing everyone else does. She said, oh, grasshopper, you need to just practice this and you'll understand. And at the end of that weekend, I was changed and I never went back. You hear a lot of got to get out of your comfort zone. Oh, writing a book is out of my comfort zone. Giving a TED talk out of my comfort zone. You know what's out of your comfort zone? Life. Most of your life you spend out of your comfort zone. In fact, I'm not so sure, and neither the two authors I just showed you about from the Harvard Business Review, they said this idea that you've got to be uncomfortable to do something amazing, nope, not true. Because when you're out of your comfort zone, you go into survival mode. You're not worried about how to do what you're great at. You're like, how do I get through this? They say, Buckingham and Goodall, we learn most in our comfort zones. It's where we're most open to possibility, most creative, insightful, and productive ideas. I obviously botched that quote, but you see my point. That is where we are. That is why. First of all, I've been doing gateless years and years, and this article just came out, and I said, finally, corporate is catching up. This is your comfort zone. And if you can't tell by the sound of my voice, I'm not exactly a warm, fuzzy, soft, uh, glad-handling, nice person. I mean, I'm not a bad person, but I, I don't go in for flattery and make everyone feel good. That's actually not my, my power zone at all. What is, is seeking power and helping other people become aware of and recognize their power on the page. Now, there's comfort, right? And I don't mean lazy and contented. I mean comfort, a place where you can comfortably do your work. And, but I'm very careful to explain what I mean by safe space because people throw that word around a lot and they'll say, oh, it's a safe space. You can tell me. And then you say something and they get mad and that's not a safe space anymore. So what do I mean by safe space here in this imaginary room we're all in, this digital space? When I say safe space, I mean it's safe for you, the writer. So we're going to do some writing in a few minutes and then a few of you will share what you wrote. And I'm going to tell you why that's safe, because there will be no criticism or judgment of your work. We're not going to just go, oh my God, Joe, you're such a great writer. Oh my God, next. No, we're going to apply a skill here. But the safe space is you as the writer have no reason to fear sharing it. Can I promise that when you listen to someone read something that you, the listener, won't get triggered? No, I can't promise that. You could be triggered by someone's story. And I say to people in my own programs, I say, I can't promise you won't feel triggered by something. My, I am here to protect the writer. And since you're all writers, I'm all on your side. What is the point of these rules I'm about to show you? Because there are strict rules with how we give feedback here. The point, keep the writer safe. It's not about feeding your ego. It's about making sure you have sovereignty in your work. Remember when I said, you're not a word waitress? You don't want to be like, do you like this? Do you like it? Are you... No, you need to own what's good. It doesn't mean you don't take good advice and refine and edit later. Of course, we're all going to do that. 
But in the beginning, or when you're writing the ending and you're running, maybe some of you are running for that last page and you're feeling out of juice, you need to feel that you own it all the way through. The point is to listen to the work. What we sharpen here are our skills as listeners, not just as writers, because next to reading, which is probably the number one thing will make you a stronger writer, number one is listening and knowing what to listen for. When you train yourself to see the genius in other people's work, you will start to see it in your own. But if you only point out flaws, no wonder you hate yourself. No wonder you put your own work down. So here are the rules, and don't worry about memorizing them. I will remind you of them later. But I want you, I'm feeding you the left part of your brain right now, the rules, so it can relax. Because once you know the rules, then you know you're safe. Because we're going to follow these rules. Not just me. I will enforce them. But you also must, because you're going to comment on each other's stuff in the chat. And I need you to follow these rules and not break them. Because you break them, you break the container. What I'm doing here is setting the container. Okay, so what we do is we focus on the work. I don't point at Eric and say, well, Eric seems to be a this kind of person because of what he just wrote. Nope. We keep the speaker safe. In fact, if Eric chooses to read his work, we don't talk to Eric after he reads. We don't go, Eric, you're such a great writer. No, we talk about what we were given on the page and that's it. That allows you as the writer to feel safe and not feel attacked. Because if you've ever shared a creative thing and people took it down and took you down with it, you know how that feels. We also listen and respond to what's working. We do not offer suggestions. I want none of your edits and suggestions today. Not here. We point in the direction we want this person to go, hey, you did this. This was fantastic. That was fantastic. We see what's there and working. You know why? Because no one points that stuff out. They tend to be like, well, you might want to, I didn't understand this. And you leave feeling like crap. We also do not disclaim, fix, or criticize our own work. So when it's your turn to read, you might say, okay, I'm going to read this, but I'm really nervous. And I don't know. I don't think it's very good. I only had a few minutes. No, 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 no. There is no prologue ever. And you do well to never disclaim your work again. It is a weak positioning for one. It's a waste of time too. And three, it says that you don't trust us as listeners. If you have to disclaim, you're saying you think I'm a dummy and can't actually hear you where you are and understand that you had a limited time to write it in. This is how we build trust and morale and lower our allergic response to feedback. And we stay on the page. We do not go off the page, meaning I don't go, hey, has anyone watched that other show? This reminds me of that. Mm -mm. We don't say, oh, I really loved Bob's story because I also am a parent and I feel about my kid. Nope. We don't talk about ourselves. We can talk about how we felt, what moved us. We do not take the conversation away from the page because that actually brings the energy down. You'll see. Oh, oh! if you want to learn more about this, because I want to get us into it, if you want to learn more about this and get more of a deep dive, I have a free guide if you want to get it. It's just my website, terrydespecial.com slash five, the number five ways. You can get the guide. It's also an audio guide. You can Hit play while you're doing your hair, and you'll be done in 20 minutes if you want to learn more. But in case some people have to drop off the call early, I wanted to make sure there was a way for us to be in touch uh, because I'm forever sending out um, cool stuff for you to, that is geared toward helping you write. Now I'm going to do the thing that we do with Gateless, which is I'm not taking any questions right now. I know you have them. The questions are often a way for the critic to get his or her word in. Oh, but, 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 but what if I do it wrong? And is this a, a, a? We're not, we're not. 
you have to trust yourself and trust me here. You're going to just write. It doesn't matter if this is page 82 of your book. In fact, you are not to start with anything you've written before. You can take what you do here and work it into your stuff later. But what you're doing is you're writing from a blank page and you're going to write to a prompt. You don't have to write to the prompt. You can ignore it and write whatever the heck you would like to write. A hundred percent. You just can't start with any existing text, okay? When you write to a prompt, if you choose to, and people love the prompts, the point of it is not to give you a topic because you're all doing different topics. The point is to nudge your intuition rather than just using the CEO of the brain. Like, what should I write about first? What's the next chapter? Blah, blah, blah. What I want you to do is to write without thinking. You're just going to see what comes up and you're going to trust that it's coming up for a reason. You're going to start from scratch and you're going to use your body as well as your brain. I want to come out of this for a second and tell you and say this to your face. This is exactly what I'm saying is you don't just write from the smart part of your brain. I can write a good sentence. I can write a da-da-da. I want you to do something. I'm going to get you in a place to do this where you're actually going to write with your whole body. Natalie Goldberg, who wrote Writing Down the Bones, one of the best books on writing of all time, she says, writing is a physical act. It's physical. You actually can't think without your body. Try. How would you think without your body? You think the brain thinks it's so smart, like it's up here just riding the body around like a stallion. When in fact, how would you know if something was fuzzy or very clear or sharp or warm or tight? All of that is body language. The best writing, the kind of writing that will move audiences is going to come from your body, not from your brain. Of course, it's coming. <laughs> the brain is involved, obviously. But when, when you say, I want to move people with my work, if you've ever read something that was kind of dry, you're probably like, oh, I should work hard to read this. The stuff where you were like, oh my God, I'm so, you know when you're reading a book and you're seduced by the book, that's because it's the body. And yes, absolutely, you're right. Your brain is part of the body. But in our culture, we tend to be like smart and you know, the body is different. Yes, the whole body though. And that means when you write today, it's not just ideas. I need it to contain something that came from the body, senses, experiences. When you move someone, when you read something and you're moved by it, you're moved by it in the whole body. And that's the idea. All right? You got to trust me. Trust me on this because it changes the, the way you write. So the way I want you to see this, I'm going to give you a prompt, is I want you to think about this this way. That when I give you a prompt and any word I say could be a random word and you go, oh, I want to do that. Whatever catches on that hook, you're going to bait your hook and drop it down. Whatever you catch on that, you go, what the heck? I just caught an old shoe. It's a saddle shoe I wore in 1985. Whatever. What is it about that shoe? The, your, your intuition, your memory knows things. And those stories do matter. And, and as you're writing, you're going to go, why am I doing this? Shut up, critic. Shut up. We're in the middle of doing some work here. So, you ready? Let's do it. Now, you're not going to have a ton of time. This is part of the method. Part of the method is exactly this, that you don't have a lot of time. I'm going to give you like, like maybe 10 minutes, maybe. Uh, and so, you don't have time to think and strategize and what's everyone going to like. Screw everyone. Screw everyone on this call. 
you're going to write what's really good. It's, I know why you're nervous because this is momentous writing. This is a moment and it's about to be different from anything else you've written. Okay. So if it's safe for you, you're not driving. I want you to just settle into your seat. Okay. Roll your shoulders. I want you to shake it out. Hands are off the keys. You do not have a pen in your hand. You do not have a phone in your hand. Throw that phone across the room for now. Notifications are off. I want you to close your eyes if you're willing and able. <sighs> and just let go. Your brain right now, you got all kinds of emotions going. Your brain's firing on all pistons. It's like a pool that a bunch of kids were jumping around in. Now, the kids all climbed out. All those busy thoughts, the kids all climbed out of the pool. And now, you just sit as that pool becomes still. With each breath, I want you to feel the pool become still. It's not choppy anymore. Because the more still that pool becomes, the more clearly you can see. Because then you see if something bobs up. When something comes floating up out of your memory, you'll spot it. But you can't if it's busy. So you're not busy right now. I want you to just focus on where I'm going to tell you to pay attention to, okay? I want you to just focus with your eyes closed on your feet. What are your feet touching? Are they barefoot? Do you have socks on? Become really aware of your feet Maybe they're folded up underneath you on the couch. I want you to picture what's under your feet. You've got a couch, a floor, hardwood, carpet, a floor below that, the foundation of a building below that. I'm 18 floors up, so there's many floors below me. But think all the way down below that. Now dive down underneath that. There's just dirt and dirt for miles, right? All the way down there. It's solid. You are not floating around loose. You are connected to the earth. Feeling grounded like that is real hard when we live in a digital space so much of the time. I want you to feel your feet as if they each weighed 35 pounds and they're weighted. They're holding you very steady. Now, I want you to picture warmth kind of coming up, up, up from the dirt, all the way up to the bottoms of your feet, like those electric balls used to touch where the electricity goes right up into your hand. And picture that kind of light. Maybe it's a light, whatever color you see. And it's warm. And it's going to go up through your feet. And when you think about your feet and now your ankles. And all the way up to your knees. And the warmth moves all the way up your legs into the bowl of your pelvis. With each breath, you just feel it getting oh, heavier and more solid. The light goes all the way up your spine, filling up your belly with each breath, your chest, your abdomen, your spine like a string of Christmas lights, lights all the way up to the back of your neck. Picture that energy, boom, right down both arms, all the way to your fingertips. Your fingers are going to be how those words get out. And the light goes all the way up, crests up into your jaw, relax your jaw, into your ears because you're going to be listening so carefully. Relax the backs of your eyelids. Relax your scalp. And feel your whole body is just 
warm and whole and connected. Now I want you to just listen and whatever snags for you, whatever pops up, you just start and you write what you see. You're not writing an essay. Good writing, Anne Lamott says, is about telling the truth. So is improv acting, if you've ever taken that. I took a class once and the teacher told us, don't try to be funny, be honest. Truth in comedy, when people act the most honestly, it is the funniest. But when you're truthful and honest, it can also be the most moving or the saddest or the most powerful or the most vulnerable. I want you to think about a time you told the truth. Maybe you stopped lying. Maybe you went back on a thing you said and finally came clean. Maybe you spoke up once when you didn't think you would and you had the courage and you did it. Maybe you were a tiebreaker even though you knew you would lose friends doing it. Or maybe you finally said the thing that needed to be said. It could have been a secret to one person. It could have been to the whole room. It could have been to the whole world. Where were you when this happened? And maybe you're thinking of three different times. That's okay. You can leap from scene to scene to scene if you want, but you must start somewhere. Where were you when you told the truth? Why did it matter? Start writing. This could move. You and I did the other day, cut the whole piece up by paragraph, all strips. And then I just moved them around. I said, what if I started with this? What if I said, it gets you off the computer sometimes. So I'm going to get off. That's the Daniel Handler, Lemmy Snicket's writes entirely. He has a notebook of just notes. He types them up, cuts them up, and he moves them around, puts them on post notes. So you are... That's, yeah, physical. Sometimes <laughs> you need to get physical with the work because sometimes you're looking at the computer, you're like, oh, I can't, I can't. Like, you don't even know what you're looking at anymore. That's, as soon as I feel my eyes get like, I don't even know. I go, okay, how long has it been? And I set a, I use a timer to see how long I've been working. So when I go to work on the book, I use toggle. I use toggle. And, I'll, and as soon as I start getting like, oh, I need to order a card again. As soon as I start like nosing around and shopping, I go, what time is it? Oh, you've been doing it for an hour and a half. It's time to stop. Like I can, 90 minutes, I'm just done. So take a damn break. Go away, come back, write fiercely. Go away, come back, love it into shape, love it into shape. Anything else I'm missing, Major? Yeah, write a shitty first draft. Exactly, that's right. Anything else that I'm, that I'm missing out here? I think you crushed it here. If you oh, want good. to come and sort of mimic some of these exercises, that's what they're there for. You come and you say, hey, anyone else want to basically be part of my gateless group here to give feedback on something? That's what it's for. Like writing is an individual activity, but it's not an isolated activity. Mm-hmm.